And so let's go ahead and open up to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 18. That'll be our text for today. Let's read together. It says this, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, and that might become, that it might become plain that they are all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you, have, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And so John starts this letter out with a little timekeeping. He talks about the last hour. And I'll admit to you today that I get pretty anxious uh, at the prospect of being late to things. I don't know if that maybe is your personality too, but being on time is important to me. I, I can get fixated on like having enough time to be on time because it's just not okay just to be on time. It, like you've got things to worry about. Like I got to park. I could have to check it. I got to check my luggage somewhere. There's lots of things to be concerned about. And what can happen is it can create a different version of myself where I'm a little bit more curt a little bit more deliberate and more internal uh, as I try to figure out how we cannot be late or as I struggle with the reality that we are going to be late and I'm just going to have to deal with it. Now, I won't name names, but there are people in my life that aren't as concerned with that as I am. She will remain nameless. <laughs> Ellie, Ellie. In this culture, it is obvious that there is pressure to be on time. Being on time is important. You can lose your job for not being on time. You can lose finances for not being on time. We often stress, becomes a stumbling block for us. But this kind of rationale of being on time is really a cultural phenomenon here in the States that's not shared in other places. I have an uncle on my wife's side who was a geologist, or is a geologist, and lived in Venezuela for a season in his life. And during that time, they befriended lots of people, and they had a couple that kind of became their friends, and they invited them over for dinner one night. They said, hey, join us at 6 o'clock at our house, gave them directions. And just as any good American would, they showed up five minutes before 6, being early. They knocked on the door, and nobody answered. They waited there for a while. They knocked on the door. Again, nothing. They tried this a few more times. And then eventually, the woman of the house came down in her bathrobe, and opened the door and looked at them perplexed, like, what are you doing here? And she just kind of stared, and she said, dinner was at six, 
And she looked at them as if they were crazy people. And they sat in their living room for two hours for them to get ready. And people started to show up for this dinner at eight o'clock. So in their, in their culture, six o'clock really meant eight o'clock. There isn't like a deadline that it means here in America. Maybe that would drive you nuts. It would drive me probably a little bit nuts. But time is not something that's measured in the same way in different parts of the world. Now, in John's letter here, he's concerned with how we tell time. However, it's not chronological time that he's concerned about. He's not concerned with time like I'm concerned. What he's more concerned about is spiritual clock watching. His interests aren't in how time is kept by man, but as time is kept by God. How God reckons time is important in a theological issue that should concern the heart and occupy the mind of every follower of Jesus Christ because God does indeed keep time. He does. And Scripture says that we are in the last hours, that time is running out, that midnight is almost here. And maybe you're like me and you think of these ancient scriptures and you think, how can that be true that we're in the last hour? Especially if you reflect on the, the date in which these letters were written. This was written in 90 AD. And so that's 1900 plus years of the last hour. Now I've had some long hours in my life. I've lo watched lots of chick flicks in my day. But 1900 plus years is a long hour. And so what is going on here? Is John delusional? Has he lost his mind? How would he understand that this is the last hour? And well, the last hour in Scripture refers to this new era that was brought forth by the life and death of Jesus Christ. John makes reference to this new day earlier in the chapter, in the eighth verse, when he says, in which the darkness is passing in the way and the true light is already shining. The last hour is the time between the death and resurrection of Jesus and his second coming. That's the, what that scripture means when we talk about the last hour. In our New Testament, there are only two ages that are lined out for us. There is the present age and there is the age to come. The, the present age and the age to come. And this present age is called the evil age. And Paul writes about this in Galatians 1. Here's what he says. He says, grace to you and peace from God our fathers and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And so Paul characterizes the age that we are living in as evil. The present age is evil, dominated by evil. We're all in it. All of humanity has been in this present age since the fall of mankind that we can read all the way back in Genesis 3. And this age will last as long as it takes before Christ returns and sets up his everlasting kingdom here on earth. And so John writes this as a reminder, writes it as a reminder that we are to live in light of its trueness, that we are to live in light of that reality, that this is the final hour. And that's not a phrase that's meant to scare us. That, that can be a scary phrase. I mean, early in my days walking in faith, I, I remember being paralyzed with fear in some way at the thought of Christ returning. And there were lots of things that I wanted to do in my life. I did not have time for him to come back. I needed to do this, this, and this. And I was fearful of his return. I, I have a close friend that was just, he was just scared. He kept having this image of Christ 
descending from the clouds. And, And maybe you are struck with that kind of fear as well of God's return to earth. But what changes that fear is to realize that the kingdom of God is not just a little bit better than this present age of evil, but astonishingly, infinitely better than it ever could be. If this age is denoted as an evil age, how much better will God's holy kingdom be where there is no death, there's no disease, and there is no sin? I mean, that's a beautiful thought. It's not something that we should grow fearful of. And we are to live in a way that we understand that the kingdom is moments away. Now, don't hear me as predicting anything. Don't go and say, hey, Steve said tomorrow, right? I'm not that guy. I'm not starting any cults like that. I I just want to read what John says. It's the moments are dwaning. And how do you act when somebody tells you that this is your final notice, your final minutes, your final anything? How do you act? I mean, I know when I take my girls to the park and I say, hey, you've got five minutes left, like they engage in the slides and the swings like they've never engaged before. There is a heightening of our reality when something is soon to be over. Uh, But for the Christian, it's not so much that we indulge ourselves in this present world. It's that we would increase in our desire and anticipation and hope for what's next. After graduation, when I graduated from college, uh, Nikki decided that she wanted to go abroad and teach English. We weren't engaged. We weren't married at that time. I was under the belief that we were going to get graduate, get engaged, get married. That's the plan that I had. So this whole let's go abroad thing kind of struck me a little silly. But we prayed. We, we believed that it was the right thing to do. And she ended up going to Chile, not with two L's, just L-E, Chile, the country Chile, for a year. I was going to teach English there. Now, somewhere along the way, about six months in, she realized she missed me, which is great to be missed, right? And so she set a date to come home after six months. And I'll tell you what, from the time that I knew that she was coming home to the date that she arrived, I never thought more about her in those moments. I thought about her more in those moments than I had the previous months that she was gone. That phrase, Nikki's coming home, informed my reality. Everything I did was informed by that thought. What I did, how I dressed, my mood, my behavior, my thoughts, my actions, influenced by the thought, Nikki is coming home. And so it is for you and I, believers in Christ, that the last hour is not a reality that should create fear, concern, but one that produces steadfastness, renewed hope and desire and love at the thought that our King is coming, that he's coming home that his return is near, and that we should live in the anticipation and knowledge of that. And John says that we know that we're in that age because there are these presents of what he calls antichrist that will lead to what he says is a final antichrist. And it's interesting enough that the only place that we find this word antichrist is in John's letters. It's, It's nowhere else in scriptures, but we have a fascination with this term antichrist within our culture. I think uh, that series called Left Behind, uh, that was, I don't know if you guys even remember that series, but it kind of raised up this thought process of the antichrist. And so when I say the word antichrist, there's this kind of visceral reaction. Ooh, he said uh, antichrist. We we get these thoughts like, it's like uh, the word Mufasa, like in The Lion King, right? And it says, there's this like, ooh, it's just a cool word. You you react to it. And so it's important that we understand what 
is he talking about? What is he meaning when he says this word antichrist? Well, anti in Greek is a preposition that can mean either going against or in place of. So it has two meanings, to against something or in place of something. So the antichrist can be uh, either somebody who is against Christ or someone who is seeking to replace Christ, someone who is an adversary of Christ or someone who is a false representation of Christ. When we think of the Antichrist, we often, and at least maybe this is just my mind, we think of this overtly evil person that's just bent on destroying Christians. I, I get this thought of Gargamel from the Smurfs. Like that's, that's what I think of when I think of the Antichrist. But God does say that there will be a final Antichrist that will lead the world in rejecting belief in God, but he won't look like Gargamel. He will be somebody that's charismatic, alluring in personality. His aim will be to get rid of any pretense of religion. He will do away with God altogether. Revelation 13 talks about he will perform signs and wonders in which all mankind will recognize him or her. And he will teach that mankind is sufficient. We don't need God. Isn't that the foundation that's already being laid today? You don't need God. You're sufficient in yourself. And here's the promise that we have, that God will eventually crush him. He will be dealt with by God. But what John compels, uh, I think, of more importance to us is that there are people who are of us, that were once a part of us, that were once a part of fellowship with God, that are called antichrist. He says this, that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all, all, all are not of us. Now, John's not saying anybody that leaves the local church is an antichrist. That's not what he's saying. He's saying anybody that leaves fellowship with God's eternal church, his universal church, the big C church, they would once be a part of us, but they left that because they began to believe and teach other things. Namely, that Jesus wasn't the Christ. Now, it's very important that you understand that Jesus' last name is not Christ the way that my last name is Serbal, right? Jesus is not of the Christ family. Jesus is the Christ. Now, Christ is a term that means atoning or a, a anointed one or chosen one. It it's, comes from the, the Greek word Christos. In Hebrews, it's Messiah. It, which means Messiah. So Christ and Messiah mean the same thing. And, and in this time, John writes about a group of people called the Gnostics that are claiming that they have this special knowledge that is a revelation to them that wasn't available to ordinary people like you and I. They had the knowledge, and their knowledge compelled to them that Jesus was not the Christ, which absolutely contradicts what Jesus said to be true about himself. John writes in his gospel in chapter 4 uh, of an interaction that Jesus has with a woman in the, at the well in Samaria. And it says this, that the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am that Christ. And so John writes this letter as an encouragement to his little children, as he calls them, to remind them that there is, listen, there is no special knowledge that one needs to have to understand who Christ is. 
but rather all of those who confess with sincerity and hope in Christ have the anointed on them, have an anointing on them where the Holy Spirit lives within them that confirms exactly who Jesus Christ says he is. I love William Barclay. He's a great theologian. And he writes this in his commentary on 1 John. He writes this, In the matter of faith, the humblest Christian need have no feelings of inferiority to the most learned scholars. The essentials of the faith are the possession of everyone. What we need is not new truth, but for the truth which is already known to become active and effective in our lives. There is nothing new that needs to be learned about God that isn't revealed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Rather, we need to realize it in our hearts and our minds. But far too often, humans, by nature, always think that new is the most attractive thing. They always are attracted to something new just because it's new. We almost think everything is better if it's new. But that's not true when it comes to truth. New truth is not better than truth that's been truth for eons. Truth that has been true from the beginning is better. But in this evil age, as Paul reminds us, in these last hours, there will be those who distort God's message, that reject God's message, reject Christ, and John calls them antichrist. And listen, they're not overtly evil people. Like, you're not going to walk around and go, oh, Antichrist. Look at his stance. That's an Antichrist right there. They're, they're people just like you and I who have read into Scripture their own opinions, their own beliefs, their own preferences, who create reality, reality and truth by what they have come to know and experience rather than what God has already said. And so if I sat up here on the stage you would call me a fool if I told you you could take a box of pigeons and put them on your car and your car would fly. That's laughable. But we are far less put off when we creation alters, distorts, rejects, and redefines what our creator has intended and said to suit our own needs and our own preferences. That is by definition foolish. We don't change what God has said. That's laughable. It, it reminds me of this uh, this opera singer named Florence Foster Jenkins. She, she loved to sing opera. She inherited money in her 50s, and she funded her own musical journey. It wasn't long before she began to have some popularity. It began to skyrocket, and she would hold these annual concerts in the Ritz-Carlton in, in New York in the 1930s and the 1940s. But listen, it wasn't because she was so good. It was because she was so bad. People behind her back would call her the tone-deaf diva, the terror of the high seas. That's not a good nickname to have. But she didn't get it. She didn't grasp that she was that bad. When people laughed and hooted at her, she took it as this delirious enthusiasm for great music. She thought they loved her and they loved her music. And in 1944, at 76, she threw this benefit auction in Carnegie Hall. It's still like one of the most requested uh, like concerts at Carnegie Hall. She sang a painful rendition of Ave Maria. She thought she was good. And so what can we learn from Florence Foster Jenkins? What's this? People will say, it doesn't matter what you believe, so long as you're sincere. 
But if what you believe doesn't match reality, it's delusional and laughable. And the same is true about God. If we think that we can say and believe things about God that he doesn't say about himself, we're delusional. And we have contradicted the creator. There's this remarkable interaction between a guy named Job and and God in the book of Job. Job is a man who's experiencing great suffering in his life. Job is wanting to talk with God for essentially the first 40 chapters about why he's suffering. And he's making claims to his friends about why he's suffering and why he's not suffering as if he had knowledge of such claims. And finally, in chapter 38, God responds. And this is how God responds to Job. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, these, I mean, incredible words, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. This is God saying, stand up straight and look at me. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstones when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job, who are you to tell me what I do? Who are you to speak for me? It's true for us. And so the warning here from John is that we not believe those who are speaking against Christ or speaking against the gospel of Christ, the truth that we've known from the beginning, namely that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And so how do we go about protecting ourselves from false doctrine and antichrist? How do we protect ourselves from hearsay? Well, John says in the light of the danger of antichrist, we are to protect ourselves by abiding in the original message, the truth that has been there from the beginning, that we are to keep God's word straight. The word that was given to this church is by John and the other apostles, the word that we have in possession, that if we abide, if they would abide in that truth, then the promise that we have is this, eternal life. Now, make sure that you understand abiding is just more than knowing. John doesn't say that if you know God's word, you know God. There are many that have bare intellectual knowledge about God that that don't have a relationship with God. Abiding is more than knowing. Abiding is about living in, endurance with, sustained by. It's having God's word living in us. If God's word lives in us, God lives with us. We can have a growing, living relationship with God through his word. And this principle of abiding, it's being near is is true in every aspect of your life. I mean, if you are dealing with friends who are having conflict and you are near them, you understand the intentions of their disagreements and you can help mediate that. But if you're distant from that conflict, you just create stories and assume things. If you want to get somewhere... You would want to ask somebody who lives close to where you want to go. Why? Because being near the place that you want to go, they're going to give you better instructions. And for you and I of faith, the nearer, the more we abide with Jesus, the more we abide with God's word, the better we are equipped to call out false gospels or to understand distortions because we're near his word, we hear his voice, 
We live with the Spirit. John says that if we abide, we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we need no one else to teach us. Now, people can perverse that verse and say, well, see, I don't need the Word. I've got the Holy Spirit. I don't need people to teach. See, I don't, I don't need to go to church. I don't need people to teach, teach me. I, I can, my conscience will tell me what. Well, that's not what John is intending here. The very fact that John is writing a letter to the church is, in fact, that he's teaching them what to be concerned about. And so what this means is that God says that the Spirit confirms in you what is true about God by the Holy Spirit, that you shouldn't need somebody else to teach you anything new. You know it. And so in abiding, that's how we protect ourselves from this present age of evil, this last hour. And if we choose to remain distant, then the reality is that we probably have set ourselves up to be deceived and confused down the line. Now, I'll just speak to this. One of the ways that we attempt to protect ourselves uh, from Antichrist, but ends up proven to be more harmful than it is helpful, is by speculating uh, about spirits of Antichrist or speculating about people being Antichrist when it comes to their scripture and their doctrine. Uh, What John is contending here is that, that when those things approach us, we will be able to defend and deal with them. He's not asking us to make a holy war against uh, other Christians to see if they're teaching the right things or not. Quite frankly, I get kind of disturbed with the number of Christians who are engaging via social media at attacks on other Christians, speculating them to be heretics or antichrist. I don't think we give Christ a good name at all by bringing our battles into the public sphere. I would say that we would better be served by taking those issues that we have with brothers and sisters to them in private and dealing with those things and dealing with those things according to how Jesus talks to us in Matthew 18 that we are to deal with sin in each other. We spend way too much time attacking one another as believers and not enough time loving and speaking the truth of the gospel to those who don't know Jesus. And we probably should stop speculating. We should, it happens every election cycle. We should probably stop speculating that every president or presidential candidate or political leader or world executive that we don't like is the Antichrist. Like, that, that's not within our knowledge to speculate. Look, look, we can trust that God's got it, all right? And you, by speculating and calling out everybody that you think is the Antichrist, is not expediating God's plan here on earth. I understand that we're trying to warn people. Our hearts are maybe trying to keep people from going down and believing something dangerous, but that's not our place. That's not in Scripture for us to go around just, is that the Antichrist? Okay, I think he's the Antichrist. Let's call him the Antichrist. That's not our, that's not our place. And so the message of John today to us is this, is that, and we'll recap this on the screen, is that we, the believer, have to understand that this is the final chapter in human history. This is the last hour before Christ comes. That's not something you need to fear, something that we look with hope, look at, and anticipate. And we understand in this season that there are going to be people who are going to rise up against Christ, straight out reject him, try to take his place, distort his gospel, teach falsely. Some may even claim to be Jesus. So no, the Antichrist are among us. Remember what you've known from the beginning. And the way that we protect ourselves is to abide. Abide to what we already knew in him whom we already know. To keep 
close to him in all that we do. Would you pray with me? Father, we just thank you so much for your truths. Um, Thank you that uh, your knowledge is better than our knowledge. Uh, God, thank you for pressing on our hearts things that we're not comfortable with. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would convict us and move us in this season as we search out after you into a place where we abide in you richly, that we live near with you, that we are sustained by your living and active word in our hearts. And, Father, I pray that you will do what it takes to get us there. And so if I need a two-by-four across the face, Lord, someday to get me on that path, Lord, help us to see the beauty of abiding in the Father, that we may not be thrown around by every wind of doctrine as these final hours close. Jesus, we love you, we praise you, and we pray this in your amazing name. Amen.